We are concluding our series, Unbelievable. We've gone through ten weeks of looking at different uh, cultural defeater beliefs that keep us from believing on Jesus Christ. And so, if you've been coming these last ten weeks, we are thrilled that you have been. If you've made a profession of faith, you might say, what do I do now? Well, a great thing to do next is to go to our Discovering Grace class that starts up September 13th. If you're still thinking about some of these questions, if you're still wrestling with who Jesus is and and what he did, then there are multiple opportunities for you to continue to ask questions. You can come to Christianity Explored, which begins on September 23rd. And then you can also come on September 13th to a new Sunday school class at 8.30 that's going to continue discussing some of these same topics called unbelievable. So we're excited that you're here and you should feel free to continue to explore your faith with us. Next week, Paul May, our new church planner, will be here. He will be preaching and then we will start our new sermon series for the fall. We will preach Uh, throughout the fall on just nine verses, so get excited. Uh, But today, we're going to conclude our series, Unbelievable, asking one question. How could a loving God send people to hell? Now, the question doesn't need a whole lot of explanation. We understand the objection immediately, right? We think, how can I reconcile a God of love and a God of wrath? You know, this thought, this objection, it's caused many to reject Christianity, but it's also caused many Christians to reject hell. And I want to be honest with you up here as well, that as a pastor, your pastors don't live in an ivory tower. We don't live in a Christian bubble. Like you, we have family and friends who don't know Jesus. And so to talk about the topic of hell, it's sobering. It's heartbreaking for us. It's not one that we talk about lightly. But there's a great text for us to look at this morning because the most unbelievable thing in this entire series is grace. And I'm sure there is grace in this text. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14. So you can turn there. If you have a pew Bible, you can grab it off of the rack in front of you and it's found on page 851. As I've read this text this week, it's a very heavy text. And if I'm allowed to say this, it's a holy text. As I've read it, I feel like I need to take off my shoes. Because we are encountering Jesus during the last week of his life, leading up to the crucifixion. We're joining the story where Jesus has just had the Last Supper with his disciples. And he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to be betrayed by one of his closest friends that will lead him to the cross. So give attention to the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 32. It says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? 
Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we consider this text, I pray that we might fall down at the feet of Jesus, that we might behold our God, that we might adore Jesus for what he did, that we might be made like him through the preaching and the hearing of your word. In his name we pray, amen. So, I came across a story in the Chattanooga Times by a friend of mine this week. It was an opinion article, and this is what he wrote. Several years ago, I visited my parents for a holiday family get-together. At one point, I went downstairs to peruse the endless shelves of books in the basement. I zeroed in on a book titled To Hell and Back by a Chattanooga doctor, Maurice Rawlings, published in September 1993. I thumbed through the opening pages, which were signed by Rawlings. A collectible, I thought. Then he read the dedication page. And in a surprising instant, his life was transformed by a few words found in a book. Now, it's possible today that your life might be transformed as well by a few words in a book from this story. So let me lay it out for you. Three thoughts this morning as we look at this text and consider the topic of hell. The first is this. Okay, when you're thinking about hell, you cannot trust yourself. Now, how do I get that from this text? Look down at verse 33 and 34. What does it tell us about Jesus? It tells us he was deeply distressed and troubled. Now, a better translation of the word distressed is astonished. So think about that for a moment. The Son of God, who when talking to the woman at the well, knows how many husbands that she has. The Son of God, who is able to make the lame walk. The Son of God, who is able to make the blind see, is surprised. He's astonished. But not only is he astonished, he's also deeply troubled. Now, the Greek word actually conveys this feeling of horror. And commentators say it would be the same experience as if you were going home, you went in your house, and you found your family murdered and mutilated. How would you feel? You would feel horror. You might not be able to breathe, nauseated, fall to the ground, and that's why Jesus says in this text, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's not hyperbole. Now, I'll explain why he felt that a little bit later. But let me ask you this question. How did you feel about Jesus when you heard that he was astonished and troubled? Did you like that? 
If you did, you're probably an American Westerner because you like the idea that Jesus is authentic. Oh, this makes him more approachable. He's much more vulnerable. I can relate to someone like this. But you see, in our modern Western culture, it's appealing because it makes him vulnerable. But in other centuries, in other places, this is actually an objection to Christianity. Because the objection might be, how could the Son of God be surprised and be troubled? If you were preaching this sermon series in a different location, this might be one of the topics. You see, how can you believe in a God who was weak and surprised might have made a different topic, a different sermon series. Why? Because we are a product of our culture. We live in a particular location. We find things like when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father. You might object to exclusivity. But our objections to Christianity actually change with our cultural context. Keller points this out in Reason for God. He says that Westerners get upset by the Christian doctrine of justice, but they find the idea of forgiving enemies appealing. In traditional societies, the opposite is true. They are offended by forgiveness, not by justice. And then he asked, why would Western cultural sensibilities be the final court to judge the fairness of divine judgment? Why should your culture your location trump another unless you think your culture is superior. You see, when approaching this topic of hell, we have to recognize that we have presuppositions. We have cultural biases to the justice and the wrath of God. And even though we might have an emotional response to it, it doesn't make it not true. So if you can't trust yourself when it comes to this idea of hell, and you can't trust me then who can we trust? Second point, I would submit to you that we should trust Jesus. On whom are you betting your life? I'm betting on Jesus. Look here. In a previous message, we discussed that one of the reasons that you can trust the Bible is because the stories are too counterproductive for them to be legends. If you're trying to get a new religion off the ground in the first century, you're not going to include a story where the pillars of this new movement fall asleep three times. You're also not going to include this unique picture of the leader of this new movement who seems to be cowering before his death. Commentators have actually pointed out that this is unique in ancient literature. They'll point to ideas in Greek and Roman culture that if you were to consider Socrates, how did he die drinking the hemlock? He, he died with stoicism and with humor. Or consider the Jewish culture at this time. If you read First and Second Maccabees, when you look at their revolutionaries, they went to their death defiant. Think William Wallace yelling, freedom, right? Also think about the stories in our Christian world. 
Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. When he was going to his death, he was going to be burned at the stake. And the magistrate was reported to have offered him um, freedom if he would renounce Jesus. His response was something like this. The fire you speak of lasts but an hour and is quenched with a little. But what do you know of the fire of judgment? So come on. Why delay? Bring the sticks. I'll help you light the fire. Is that Jesus' response here? Bring on the cross. Bring on the nails. No. He's actually struggling. And he's asking if he can get out of this mission. Others face their death more calmly than Jesus. Now if you think about that, that's not going to inspire a whole lot of confidence in his followers. To die young. To die naked. To be mocked at on a cross. And then for you to say, that's the religion for me. I want to follow that guy. No, you want to follow somebody like William Wallace. So why is this story included in the Bible? It's included in the Bible because it's true. You see, the Gospels are trustworthy. And Jesus, he spoke a lot about heaven. And he spoke a lot about hell. Jesus is the Lord of love. And if you're going to believe him about heaven then you must believe what he says about hell as well. Edgar Power, the quote on your worship guide said, Those who regard the whole idea of hell as completely repulsive betray the fact that they think that their moral sense is more acute than Jesus. You see, are you saying that you are less barbaric and you are more compassionate in Jesus because you don't believe in hell? So what did Jesus say about hell? He actually said a lot. Let me just tell you about one uh, instance. He was telling a parable in Luke chapter 16. He was telling a parable about Lazarus and the rich man. And Lazarus used to beg outside the rich man's gate. They both die. Lazarus goes to heaven and the rich man goes to hell. And Keller actually points out one of the most interesting things about this story is that the rich man... He never asked to leave hell. Keller actually says that that teaches us something about people in hell. That hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory to infinity. You see, people even in hell remain in rebellion against a holy God. In C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, perhaps you've read it or maybe you've even seen it performed by Max McLean. But in it, Lewis describes a busload of people from hell who come to the outskirts of heaven. There they are urged to leave behind the sins that have trapped them in hell, but they refuse. Lewis says this, Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom, and the doors are locked from the inside. You see, the picture of sin in the Bible is one of slavery. And we are enslaved to our sin because we are worshiping something other than God. And Paul in Romans 1.24 says God gives us up to our desires. So you see in one sense, sin is self-inflicted slavery and hell is freely chosen. If sin is saying, leave me alone, then hell is God saying, okay. 
You see, it's not like people are in a pit of hell climbing out and Jesus is at the top sadistically stomping their fingers and watching them fall back into the pit. Hell is simply God letting you go. How could a loving God send people to hell? Well, the first reason is this. Because we've committed cosmic treason and we freely choose it. Hell is a fitting response to rejecting the grace of God. We can't trust ourselves when it comes to the idea of hell, but we can trust Jesus. Now there's a third figure in this passage that we can also trust, and that's the third point. You can trust your heavenly Father. Now let's go back to the earlier questions. Why was Jesus astonished? Why was he deeply troubled? Why is it that almost all of his followers died better than him? It's because of this. Because he was facing something that none of them had ever faced before. There's a key word in verse 33. It says, he began. What did he begin to experience? He began to get a foretaste of what he was going to experience on the cross. What did he pray to his heavenly father? He asked for the cup to pass from me. He was experiencing the cup. You're like, well, that's not so horrible. (laughs) What's the big deal about a cup? Well, the cup in the Hebrew in the Old Testament was a symbol. It was the image of God's divine wrath being poured out on injustice. So you read places like Ezekiel 23 that say, You will drink a cup of wrath, large and deep, full of ruin and desolation, and you will tear at your breast. Or Isaiah 51 says, you will drink the cup of his fury and you will stagger. So some of you say, there it is. See, there's the God of wrath. I cannot believe in a God of wrath and a God of love. But think with me for just a moment. All loving persons are actually filled with wrath. Not despite it, but because of their love. Becky Pippert in Hope Has Its Reasons wrote this. Think how we feel when we see someone love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. Think about it. When you read about atrocities, when you see injustices in the world, how do you feel? You can't help yourself. You feel anger. You feel outrage. Is that a sign that you're bad? No, it's a sign that you're loving, that you're kind, that you're sensitive in your heart the more outrage there is at cruelty and injustice. How can a loving father send people to hell? Because our loving father is also holy and he's also just. Listen to how he describes himself in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. 
God is loving, but he's also holy and he's just. And not one sin receives more than it deserves. And not one sin receives less than it deserves. So what was happening to Jesus Christ? Why was he struggling in the garden? He was facing the cup of wrath. He was beginning to experience hell. He was experiencing separation from God. Bill Lane, in his commentary on Mark, put it something like this. The dreadful sorrow and anxiety Jesus experienced in the garden was not just a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. Thousands of other men and women faced that with poise and peace. It was rather the horror of one who lived wholly for the Father and who came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal. But he found hell rather than heaven opened up before him. And he staggered and he tore his breast. You see, Jesus began to experience spiritual darkness, separation from God. Every fiber on his body began to wrestle with the providence of God of what it truly means to be the Son of God sent to suffer for sinners. Now think about this. The Apostle Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. Now, where is the second Adam in this story? He's in the garden. You see, the first Adam was given a commandment. The commandment given to the first Adam in the first garden was this. Obey me and you will live. The commandment given to the second Adam in the second garden about a tree was this. Obey me and you will die. Do you see the substitution that is happening here? You see, Jesus lived a perfect life and he got hell. And we live a disobedient, rebellious life and we are offered heaven. He drank the cup of wrath so that we could be offered the cup of salvation. He takes the covenant curses that we deserve and he offers us the covenant blessings that he has earned. So this is why Paul says, God made him sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He gave up everything for us. Now this is an important point to think about. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher, illustrated it this way. He said a neighbor came to him one time and he said, hey, you weren't at your house today. I paid a debt for you. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says the homeowner doesn't know how to react because he doesn't know how big the debt was. So, for example, if it was simply the postman who needed another 20 cents on a postage stamp, that would be one thing. But what if it was the IRS that was showing up because he hadn't paid his taxes in 10 years and it was literally hundreds of thousands of dollars? You see, you have to know how big of a debt he paid for you in order to know how to react. Do you shake his hand or do you fall on your feet or fall on your knees and kiss his feet? You have to understand the debt that Jesus paid for us that he went through hell for us. Now, the other thing that we could miss in this story, it's easy to see the love of Jesus and miss the love of the Father. A pastor friend of mine went through probably a parent's worst nightmare. 
He was at a pool um, with his wife and three kids. And as they went to leave, they were missing one kid. And as he turned to look back, they saw their youngest at the bottom of the pool. They had to jump in, pull him out. They resuscitated him. He lived. They took him to the hospital. At the hospital, though, he had all these purple dots all over his face. And the father asked, what are those? And the doctor said, well, literally he was so panicked underneath the water that his capillaries burst in his face. Now, how do you feel as a parent? You see, Jesus went through the same thing in the garden. According to the Gospel of Luke, he was sweating blood. But the Father, what did the Father do? You see, any other time when Jesus came to be with the Father, the Father met him. He met him at the wilderness. Think about Jesus at his baptism. The Father loved his boy so much that when he went before his baptism, he said, this is my boy in whom I am well pleased. But now, Jesus, in his greatest hour of distress, he goes to be with the Father who he calls Abba, Papa, in this story. And what does the Father say? Nothing. Silence. Why? Do you know why? The Father was silent because of how much he loves us. You see, how could a loving Father send people to hell is not the real question. The real question is, how could a loving father send his own son to hell? Do you know the answer? The answer is us, for sinners, for you and me. In the Gospel of Luke, it says that in the garden, an angel came to minister to Jesus. We're not told how that angel ministered to Jesus. Maybe he played him a podcast of a future sermon of James Forsyth. It's possible. But I think Hebrews 12 actually gives us a better clue. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy of the cross, he endured it. What was the joy? The context of Hebrews 12 is the cloud of witnesses. I think the angel came to Jesus and reminded him that you're doing this for me and for you. You see, how could a loving father send people to hell? He sent him through hell for us. Unless you believe in hell, you will never know how much he loved you. You will never know how holy and loving and just he is. To finish this story that I started at the beginning, my friend read these words on the dedication page in the book that he found in the basement of his parents. The words on the front page said this, To the courage of a friend, Mary Shum Cosby, who declined recommended abortion, knowing that carrying her only child near term could spread an early cancer of the breast. He wrote, I had never heard or read this before. Then it hit me. I am that only child. My mom's cancer, in fact, did spread to her lungs and eventually her brain. And on a cold February day in 1996, she finished her battle here on earth. Quite literally, my mom gave her life for mine. When my friend realized that his mom died so that he could live. He experienced how much that she loved him. When you realize that Jesus went through eternal death so that you could have eternal life, you experience how much he loves you. And it will leave you transformed and it will change you. For you see, 
Friends, the Bible does not divide people between good and bad. The Bible divides people between the humble and the proud. Do you know that you justly deserve hell? Do you cry out like the thief on the cross when he said to the other thief, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, he has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. And how did Jesus respond? Today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, that's grace. That's Christianity. That's the gospel. That's why we're here. Let's pray. Father, through this story in the gospel of Mark, emotionally the idea is very, the idea of hell is very unbelievable to us. But Father, even more than this, the idea of grace is even more unbelievable. So, Father, we know that the real question is not how could a loving and just God send sinful people to heaven. And the only answer is grace, vast and free, pure and deep, strong and true. Help us to be transformed because we've experienced it this morning and know that you laid down your life for ours. In Jesus' name, amen.